the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com, on social media, at Dan Proft, on Facebook and Twitter, uh, uh, at Dan Proft Show uh, as well. Uh, so before the Super Tuesday results started pouring in, Bloomberg in Florida yesterday fielding questions from the press corps, he said this about... Uh, you know, dropping out in favor of Joe Biden like uh, Amy Klobuchar and Mayor Pete did. Other moderates in the race have dropped out to a clear path for Joe Biden. Yes, and if Joe dropped out, you would would take away, Joe's taking votes away from me. And and I I think that is true. But but you're you're also taking votes away from Joe Biden. Have you asked Joe whether he's going to drop out? I cover you. When you you ask him that, then you can call me. I'll take this. But, but sir, are you feeling any pressure today going into Super Tuesday to drop out of this race? Given these calls, and ha- but but you, you didn't really answer it, sir. You Do you feel any pressure today? No intention of dropping out. We're in it to win it, and I don't understand why you would not ask. <laughs> yeah. Now, do you understand why you wouldn't, wouldn't ask Joe Biden? Yeah. Uh, now he understands, and now Mike Bloomberg this morning dropped out of the presidential bid, endorsing Joe Biden. Uh, American Samoa was just not going to be enough. But to paraphrase Chris Matthews. We'll always have American Samoa. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Kurt Mills. He's a senior writer at American Conservative, covering national security, the Trump presidency, and the 2020 campaign. Kurt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. So Biden got what he wanted, which is Bloomberg out and in his camp, at least nominally. Can Bernie get what he needs, which is Elizabeth Warren out and in his camp more than nominally? Doesn't seem like it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. it's, it's I mean that, that that dinner that, that that dinner where they argued about whether or not a woman could win, or and then they argued about whether or not they argued about that. I mean, that's the rift. That's the whole thing here. They're very thin skinned the two of them. Yeah, it's really bad. I I mean, uh, the reputation that Sanders had on the Hill was that he didn't really value personal relationships, and. Uh, at least with other lawmakers. And I think the fact that he can't get Senator Warren, a longtime collaborator, to step aside, I mean, A, shows the sort of peak of psychosis from the Warren side. Yeah, well, but right. B, uh, the lack of uh, tacti- tactical savvy from Sanders, who was the front runner five days ago. 
Well, well, what what is Warren's plan? I mean, there was this bizarre article I referenced on last night's show. Warren's plan is to shame people into making him the Democratic nominee. <laughs> so, okay, so there was this Politico article I referenced uh, when we were t- uh, on the show yesterday while we were taking in the results. And, um, you know, uh, uh, unnamed aides of Warren say that uh, she see, they see a path to victory for her as uh, the race moves on and other people drop out that somehow magically there, she's going to start accruing delegates and winning States uh, at when she finishes third in her home state. I mean, the whole thing is just bizarre. What, what is her, what is, I mean, is it psychosis or is there some other real play that she's making? Yeah. So I don't know who those war advisors are, but whatever drugs they're on, that sounds fun. Uh, I would say, if it goes to a broker convention, I think the Warren play is twofold. One, she's always been the theoretically best candidate to bridge the gap between the socialists and the establishment, you know, roughly speaking. And two, she's a woman. And also there's an impression, especially among her devotees, that she's the most serious policy deep you know, pedigreed person to be the nominee and that Biden is a sort of good old boy and that Sanders actually wouldn't do very much because it's a lot of bluster. But there's, but, but these are all sort of um, descriptive reasons why she would be a good president from this perspective. It has nothing to do with the harsh political reality yeah, but that all being said, I don't think the Warren and Bloomberg dropouts, the Bloomberg has dropped out or suspended, really bear all that much importance anymore. It's clear that it's Biden versus Sanders. And uh, Warren may be taking from Bernie a little bit, but in the states that Biden's winning, the victories are so rapturous that it's not entirely clear that Sanders would completely gained. Additionally, it's not fully clear that all of the Warren supporters would go to, to Bernie, especially because there's such animosity between those two camps. Well, that's sure. That's true. I mean, just as uh, you know, turn, for example, uh, when you looked at uh, Mayor Pete supporters, uh, who their second choice was uh, going into last night, it was narrowly Bernie Sanders, actually. So it's never obvious that all the supporters are just going to move in mass wherever no. the, the candidate they were supporting tells them. Of course not. But it, but Biden yesterday was buoyed by two things. One was the black vote. I mean, there's clearly throughout the South, the black vote, those states that had significant black populations, he, he won going away. And then also it does seem to be that the combination of those other candidates supporting him, plus uh, all the op-ed writers and uh, all the other media amplification he got from the traditional uh, Democratic voices, mattered in places like uh, Minnesota and Massachusetts and Maine, where he's surprised. Uh, yeah, um, no disagreement there. I would say, though, that Biden last night showed himself not to be a one-trick pony that he could expand beyond his Southern African-American base. And the winds in Maine, Massachusetts, and Minnesota, all surprises, showed that he could win with white liberals. 
Right. And so it, it seems to me, though, with Bloomberg out and endorsing Biden and so continuing uh, to to, to you know, be the snowball rolling downhill. In and, terms and of, m- uh, that was that's being reported that he endorsed okay. Bi- that he dropped out. Yeah, that he dropped out and endorsed Biden. I mean, I don't know. You know, where else does he go at this point? Gabbard. Yeah. Um, well, but, I mean, he's really mad. Yeah, exactly. I think he's focused on that big win in American Samoa to try to, uh, you know, allay his uh, his hurt feelings. But yeah. but but I mean, it it it, it uh, almost makes he probably, it, he it just buy the island. Yeah, right. And and the rest of the American territories. But doesn't yeah. it make it that much more imperative for Bernie to get Warren in his camp going into Michigan a week from now? Uh, and to try to restart the momentum that he lost uh, starting in South Carolina. Well, doesn't doesn't the endorsement of Biden uh, by Bloomberg make it imperative that Bernie get Warren in his camp to restart the momentum he lost starting in South Carolina on Saturday? I just I just don't think that. Uh... I mean, she might, but I just don't think she's going to be very helpful at this point. Like, Bernie needed help from Warren before yesterday. And so... And so, I mean, yeah, it would probably be net helpful. But honestly, it's not entirely clear that Warren would help Bernie. In fact, I mean, she stayed in the race. One could, this is just conjecture, that that was intentionally to help Biden. Well, and so, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, that's, of course, what people are wondering with the uh, the dominoes falling as they did that. that, uh, What were the offers being made? Yeah. Well, right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, so like Klobuchar and Buttigieg were more directly taking with Biden. They drop out. Bloomberg had his own ego. And Warren was net hurting Bernie. And so, you know, it was it was as masterful from the Biden. Campaign. Well, and and so um, I mean, assuming that uh, Bernie is uh, fading, and, and that's and and clearly Biden is ascendant. How how do you size up a Biden versus Trump matchup? I think the White House should be worried. Why? And this is a lot harder than Sanders. Well, it was always two different types of race. races. It was take a trench in front of you versus open a new front. So if Biden's the nominee, it's take the trench in front of you. Now, it won't be brutal. It'll be hard. Both sides will get bloodied. Um, but I think Biden is in a lot better position to take back the states that the Democrats relinquished in 16. And the simple reason is, basically, people like Joe Biden better than Hillary Clinton. He is- that can't be denied. No, that cannot be denied. It's a low bar to clear, but that is true. Yeah, but it did go on politics He is Kurt Mills, senior writer at the American Conservative, covering national security, the Trump presidency, and the 2020 campaign. Kurt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. And I know it's gonna be a seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show returning to joe biden's celebratory remarks last night he uh 
interestingly chose to make a character one of the defining issues of potentially his forthcoming election against President Trump. Look, this all starts with a revival of decency and honor and character. Trump has, fla- has, has fanned the flames of hate and sought to divide us. He's insulted, demonized, and actually just, just the way he talks about people. He has not a single sense of empathy. He doesn't have any compassion. No regard for the values that made this country who we are. Not you know, the way the you thing, were raised by the, your moms the, and dads. The thing in the declaration, right? He looks at honesty and decency and respect, and he views it as a sign of weakness. He doesn't believe that we're the beacon to the world. He doesn't believe we're all part of something bigger than ourselves. That's why I've said from the moment I announced for this candidacy, we're literally in a battle for the soul of America. Mm. Uh, it's a interesting choice to uh, make honesty and decency the... Uh, threshold questions for the American electorate, this coming from a guy who's plagiarized, uh, who has lied about everything from his academic record to his time with Nelson Mandela to his son Hunter's business dealings overseas. Uh, Decency, a man who lied uh, and continued to into the first part of this century lied about the individual who was involved in the accident that took his first wife and daughter, calling him a drunk driver. He wasn't drunk. Terrible thing, but there's no need to embellish and perpetuate a lie. I mean, Joe Biden uh, is um, been a fabulous, to be generous, more generous than he would be, for three decades across three presidential campaigns and, and – um, all that time in public life. Well, what's the upshot? The upshot is he's the default candidate. It would appear that's the trajectory of the race. And uh, he's leveraged his positions as he's fumooed his way up the political food chain to enrich his family. And we're going to have an election on character. Okay. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Dominic Green. He is the life and arts editor of Spectator USA. Dominic, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hello, Dan. How are you? Good. Um, You have some of your own threshold questions uh, about uh, Joe Biden, and uh, it's sort of a a, a much more pedestrian take on the 3 a.m. question. You're not so much talking about uh, the finger on the button. You're asking if... uh, you know, Joe Biden has the mental acuity and skill sets to say, uh, you know, parallel park a minivan. Well, exactly. Uh, if you wanted to ask somebody to retrieve a tin from a high shelf and they, they had to climb up the steps, would you ask Biden? Would you be confident in his ability to do it? Uh, it's simply this. It may well be that there are very much older people who are perfectly capable of keeping up with the pace of the presidency. But I don't think Joe Biden is showing the physical and mental stamina that's required to do this. He's very clearly being steered from one event to another. As we heard just then, he has great trouble finishing his sentences. He frequently makes these bizarre assertions, which we call gaffes. But if they came from anybody else, we would be saying, well, he's starting to lose his marbles. Yeah. And one wonders. And there's so so there's some theories that abound. Right. Uh, And one of them is and this has become a little bit of a 
a go-to theory to explain everything in D.C. from Trump land. And I think this is accurate, but I think it's part of the story. But Rush Limbaugh, Molly Hemingway uh, making this point uh, yesterday that, uh, look, uh, Joe Biden's job is to go out there and lose. He's uh, the the real uh, reason there was the urgency to rally around Joe Biden, try to amplify a South Carolina victory and provide momentum going to Super Tuesday, which obviously was effective in, 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 and leverage his uh, loyal support among black voters in states where that's significant, like those southern states, which, of course, he did very well last night, is to keep the Democrat Party establishment in power, to keep all the people who have the sinecures and um, the status that they enjoy uh, right where they are. That's Joe Biden's real job. It's not to win elections. It's to protect those who uh, see themselves as the arbiters of electoral outcomes. Well, as Joe Biden said uh, just now, uh, he is uh, part of something bigger than himself, and that something is the machinery of the Democratic Party. He's emerging as the safe bet, the centrist, in a way because of two factors. One, of course, that Bernie Sanders looks quite crazy to a lot of people, and the other is that Elizabeth Warren has damaged Biden's numbers just as she's damaged uh, Sanders' numbers. A lot of the successes that Biden had on Super Tuesday If you subtracted Warren's figures, it would be a very different map this morning. Sanders would have showed much stronger, for instance, in in, uh, Massachusetts, in Texas. So this sort of confirms, in a way, the the essential weakness of Biden as a candidate. He's a placeholder, and he's holding the place for a system which most of the public has made it very clear, both in 2008 and in 2016, that it really doesn't have much patience for it. So I'm having a you know, running plebiscite over the last 24 hours with uh, all the various uh, deep thinkers like yourself. You're advising the Trump campaign. Uh, what is your approach with Biden? How do you frame the race? Oh, the, the simple approach is to put the two of them next to each other and let them slug it out, which, of course, is, is what Biden keeps saying he wants. But when you look at Trump, who incidentally is, of course, of the same age, Trump is very clearly faster on his feet. He's a master of Twitter communication and repartee. He missed, I think, a career in stand-up comedy. It's a pity, in a sense, he went into real estate because he would have made a tremendous <laughs> stand-up. I, I have the feeling he would simply dismember Biden if the two of them are there together. But do you worry uh, at all about the um, the often discussed likability factor? You know, uh, Hillary Clinton was uh, unlikable, historically unlikable and had been for a couple of generations. Joe Biden's not the same way. I mean, amiable dunce to borrow a Clark Cliffordism, uh, maybe a, the best way to describe Biden, but that that his he's not disliked enough. And that presents a problem for Trump. It may well, but I mean, there's a lot of scrutiny applied in the closing months once the candidate is identified and so on. And if Biden thinks he's had trouble now with Hunter Biden's business dealings, with all the other questions that you raised earlier, we haven't seen anything yet. I think Biden uh, has all kinds of weaknesses uh, which will offset that likability. And there's also the question of what kind of economy are we talking about? What kind of policies exactly are we going to get? If they are the tired consensus DNC-approved policies, they're not going to go over very well in November at all. One thing that we know is a cert at any election in the U.S., as in many other Western democracies, is people want change. And Biden wouldn't have represented a change 25, 30 years ago, let alone in 2020. 
He is Dominic Green. He's the Life and Arts Editor of Spectator USA. Dominic, thanks so much for joining us as always. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Take care. on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. As we've uh, discussed over the last couple of weeks on this program, as we've seen countries around the world responding to the spread of the coronavirus, it seems as that those countries that are more authoritarian have... Uh, done uh, less well in responding to the benefit of their citizens to the coronavirus, in part because they want to keep up appearances around the globe, this most notably in Iran and China as well, uh, and comparing the response from Iran and China as well as the incidence of infection and death with Iran now uh, approaching 100 deaths and 3,000 people infected to, uh, say, Taiwan, Singapore, and certainly Western nations, including America. But uh, our next guest uh, has sort of a different perspective on this, one that, frankly, was a bit jarring to me when I read it. So we wanted to have him on to discuss it. He is Chris Ogden. He's an associate professor in Chinese politics at the University of St. Andrews. Professor, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi there. Uh, you uh, suggest in this letter that you wrote to The Guardian that um, – in the short term, it may be necessary for the U.K. to behave more like China. You uh, seem to give China relatively high marks for containing the spread of coronavirus, even though it seemed uh, that they were less than forthright and less and, and responded with less, something less than alacrity initially. Yeah, um, I mean, the reason I read the article is um, to think about what could happen. If, say, in the UK, United States, you get 80,000 infections, what would be required? And China did well, I think, definitely not initially, but did well to shut down cities, did well to shut down provinces to shut the spread of the virus. Well, um, okay. We, we still don't have an exact uh, handle on, the vi- on how the virus uh, started, um, that number one, and I'm not sure that... There's a sense that China has been fully forthright, forthright with the world when it comes to the the um, uh, markets, the uh, animal markets that were in question, the lab in Wuhan that was in question. And, um, you know, I mean, the Chinese government sort of it's the silver lining, it's like looking for the silver lining with respect to the Chinese government. Isn't that a bit troubling uh, against the backdrop of what's happening in Hong Kong and what's happening to Uyghur Muslims there? I mean, is is the way that China approaches almost anything regarding its people something that we want to emulate in the West? Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I don't think anyone wants to live in an authoritarian regime. Um, no one wants to have their rights trampled upon, freedom of religion, freedom of assembling, freedom of speech, um, so on and so forth. 
I think, again, it's just to think about what would happen, what would be required um, in exceptional circumstances. And I definitely know in the British case, we're very unused to being told what to do by the government, won't really accept their opinion. But in the case of a widespread pandemic, this could be very useful. Um, I'm definitely not saying that China is a glowing example for the world. Right. But maybe there are a few examples in this specific case that could be useful for everyone. Um, there's there's also uh, the response uh, from the West to countries, including China and Iran, the response to help. Uh, there was a, a State Department in, in America, State Department website, uh, State Department press release uh, offering help to Iran in coping with the outbreak there. Uh, noting that uh, that uh, donations to relieve human suffering with respect to the Iranian people are exempt from U.N. sanctions. And uh, there was, you know, an, ex- an extension, a willingness to extend a hand as long as Iran was transparent about what they were doing and would be open to collaborating with world uh, health officials. They, uh, according to the BBC, rejected the U.S.'s offer. But it seems to me that that, that the, the quick response of countries like Taiwan and Singapore and the collaborative response of countries, not exclusively, but including the United States, and that that's what we want to see from uh, global leaders, right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And again, I'm not being supportive of the Chinese regime, but they themselves have managed to isolate the virus. They gave that information to the rest of the world. Um, they've been praised by the World Health Organization. So I think there is scope there for collaboration. But you're definitely right that everyone needs to work together to do this um, and to solve the crisis. Uh, When we come back, uh, since you're a professor in Chinese politics, I'd like to explore that a little bit beyond uh, coronavirus uh, with, uh, you know, the import of China in the uh, global economic system as well. Uh, More with uh, more with associate professor in Chinese politics, Chris Ogden at the University of St. Andrews right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with Chris Ogden. He's an associate professor in Chinese politics at the University of St. Andrews. And uh, there was this uh, interesting piece at the City Journal from a, uh, a doctor, Joel Zinberg, who's a, a clinical professor of surgery at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York and was also a senior economist for the uh, Council of Economic Advisors in America, where he specialized in healthcare policy. And uh, we, th- there's been a lot of talk about uh, the supply chain with respect to uh, uh, corporate operations the world over and China's import. He focuses specifically on s- supply chain disruptions as it pertains to prescription drugs. Uh, and with an American focus, uh, and he makes mention of the percentage of active pharmaceutical ingredients that are produced in China. Ninety percent of the finished drugs Americans take are generics. Most are manufactured overseas, primarily in India and China. Even India, the world's largest generics producer, relies on China for 80 percent of its 
of the uh, APIs, the active pharmaceutical ingredients it uses in drug production. Nearly all the antibiotics antibiotics used in the U.S. come from China. Um, some older antibiotics like penicillin are no longer made here at all. China controls the worldwide penicillin production. So it sort of makes the um, their initial response that much more troubling. But it also opens the possibility that if they're not being forthright, and I know the Trump administration believes that they're getting decent information from China, so do other WHO public uh, world public health officials. But if they're not being forthright, this is more than just about uh, uh, stock, the stock market. This is about uh, people's health in the West because of China's import in this supply chain of pharmaceuticals. Um, I mean, I completely agree. Yeah. The degree of interconnection yeah. with China symbiotically, economically, I think is beyond really most of our grasp. Um, it's supply chains for everything, pharmaceuticals, industrial products, Practically, the raw materials for everything will go through China, be reprocessed, given back out to the world. So what happens to China will impact on everybody else. So they're having a downturn. We'll have a downturn. There will be a dearth of products of every kind of variety. Right. And so, I, you know, it prompts the question sort of where I was going is, do, do uh, Western nations like the U.K. and like the U.S., need to rethink their reliance on China for for uh, certainly at least at that level of, uh, of uh, for example, pharmaceuticals? I would say so. I think what this crisis has shown in the, in the globalized world with an over-reliance upon one country, the global economy can just stop. So I think it would be in the interest of everyone to probably diversify where they get materials from, who makes these things in terms of drugs, say maybe diversify more with India, with others and be less exposed. Yeah. And it, it, it also seems to me, it speaks to, uh, you know, opportunity cost. Uh, so China was attractive for many years to Western companies because of the cost of production, the cost of labor, but there are other costs that perhaps weren't uh, properly assessed in terms of risk, like, uh, what happens when, uh, uh, you know, what happens under uh, under Chinese communist rule in terms of uh, exogenous events that are difficult to predict and the response from Chinese communists that are difficult to predict, too, and how little control you have over their responses to these unpredictable events? I think that's one consideration. I would say as well, though, that the authoritarian leaders in China do have a lot of power. So if they want to pump money into the economy, which they've been doing for the last two weeks, they can just do it automatically. If they want to re-orientate um, their industrial production towards a certain angle, a certain product, they can do it much more quickly than a Western democracy. So these might be possible benefits. But I think diversification will probably be the key. Uh, right, although that kind of command, those kind of command control decisions create all sorts of market externalities. I mean, it assumes sort of... a a uh, an insight that the Chinese Politburo has that uh, uh, men and women the world over exchanging goods and services in a market setting don't, doesn't it? It does to some degree. And I think also probably the worst factor at the moment is that she has become more kind of totalitarian. He's taken himself to be the president for life. And I think this has shut down communication within China it's made them less effective. So I think there are pros and cons either way. 
Do you uh, sense that uh, President Xi and um, the uh, communist rulers there um, are under any serious threat to maintaining power, the combination of the Hong Kong protesters now with the handling of the coronavirus outbreak? I think at the heart of Communist Party legitimacy is economic growth and continued economic growth. That's the basis for societal stability. It's the basis of their validity as the leaders of China. Xi has taken it upon himself that he's the number one person. He's ultimately responsible. So therefore, there's an economic downturn. He is responsible, and therefore, they're not legitimate anymore. So I think this could be quite existential. What, what, what I mean, from your uh, uh, study on uh, of, of Chinese politics, what, what would that look like? What form would that take? Are we going to have another tank man in Tiananmen Square as a spark, or, or what form would a possible real challenge to uh, President Xi take? I think more fundamentally, it would be an internal challenge that other people in the party would say, he's not the right person, we should remove him, a kind of clean slate, new leader, and use that as a basis for legitimacy. But in terms of, say, widespread protests, there are a lot of protests every day in China, but they're not really joined up. And I think the control that the party has over the Internet general surveillance is probably too strong to stop a nationwide uprising. But if there was one, I think it would be very ugly and highly destabilizing, which leads to probably another question, which is, would that be in everyone's interest? Again, if China is destabilized, the world is destabilized, is that really what we want in the short term? Right. Uh, so it takes some time to move supply lines to other Far East countries or, or you know, onshore them in America or Britain or the West. Uh, that's a fair point. He is Chris Ogden, mm-hmm. senior lecturer and associate professor in Asian security at the University of St. Andrews. Chris, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. The more you'll know, this is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. And uh, uh, something a little light to uh, leaven all the discussion of coronavirus and electoral politics. Uh, two viruses, if you will. Uh, this, uh, out of uh, Chicago, it is the Lenten season. I am a practicing Catholic. I struggled a little bit this year thinking about what I would either give up or make a commitment to do over the 40 days of Lent. Um, uh, and Pat Berger offered one idea. Pat Berger is the owner of, uh, two, uh, taverns in Chicago. And, uh, he, uh, entered Lent not having eaten anything for 14 days, sort of running up to it, not eating anything for 14 days. What he had done during those two weeks, though, in the run-up to Lent, Ash Wednesday, he had about 60 beers. He announced that uh, he was undertaking a Lenten effort, 40 days of no food and only beer, in the spirit of Bavarian monks in the early 1600s. Yeah, 
I've come to terms with the fact that there's going to be misery involved in this. Um, but he said, well, that's sort of the point of uh, lunch, right? Sacrifice. Although I got to say, I'm not sure that, uh, say, going for 40 days, uh, the 40 days of Lent in sort of a Chimay-induced stupor sounds much like sacrifice to me. It doesn't sound bad, actually, if only I didn't have a day job. Uh, but Berger said if there was a misery, the monks wouldn't have done it since uh, that's what they were after as well, you know, asceticism. That's what they were after at all. Anyway, uh, believe that he couldn't do it, but uh, he's doing it. Uh, he gave this interview to Chicago Magazine, so now it's out public, so now there's going to be increased scrutiny. I was raised very hardcore Catholic, says Berger, and you can't shake it as much as you try. Okay. While I gave up the Catholic Church many years ago, I didn't give up the the, uh, traditions. I celebrate Easter. I celebrate Christmas, the traditional creaster. I always give up something for Len. I just like the idea of it. Denying yourself something is hard, but every time you do it, it's worthwhile. And uh, he did consult doctors, say how deleterious to his health could this be over the course of uh, a little over a month. The big warning they gave me was about thiamine because there's zero in beer and you need that on a daily basis. Vitamin C is also a big thing. It's not present in most beers, but it helps your immune system. And I didn't want to get sick, particularly in this coronavirus environment. And uh, so anyway, uh, he is uh, accommodating those concerns accordingly over his uh, uh, Lenten commitment. But um, yeah, Eat by having some vitamins, I say that's how he's accommodating, sort of straightforward there. So anyway, um, that's um, one thing to think about. And, and perhaps, I don't know, perhaps this will become the next miracle diet and you'll start seeing uh, Pat Berger uh, doing infomercials, uh, you know, after Christ is risen. This is Dan. I'm going to leave. I'm gonna leave. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show. You know, we've been talking a lot about uh, Super Tuesday results and maybe a little bit premature because we did not get the okay from Donna Brazil to discuss the Democrat primary. And as non-Democrats, non-Democrat primary voters, she got a little testy uh, yesterday on Fox, uh, a little jittery, I think, going into Super Tuesday. She and some of her colleagues that are um, not necessarily Bernie bros and gals. Uh, This uh, uh, Donna Brazil responding to RNC chairman, chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel, just basically restating pedestrian descriptions of the Democrat primary going into going into last night. 
it does depend on how big the lead that Sanders takes out of California is, if he picks up a, a huge proportion of delegates. But I don't see anybody getting out soon, and it's leading towards potentially a broker convention, which will uh, be rigged against Bernie if those superdelegates have their way on that second vote. To that, you say what, Donna? First of all, I, I want to talk to my Republicans. First of all, stay the hell out of our race. Stay the hell out of our race. Oh. I get sick and tired, oh, Ed. Uh, and Sandra, of listening to Republicans tell me and the Democrats about our process. First of all, they don't have a process. They're canceling primaries. They have winner-take-all. They don't have the kind of democracy that we see on the Democratic side. And for people to use Russian talking points to sow division among Americans, that is stupid. So, Rana, Go to hell. This whoa, is whoa, not about. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, go hey, to hell. Whoa, I'm tired hey, of it, hey, Ed. We're not. Oh, Donna, please. We're not Family trying show. to prevent anyone from becoming the nominee. If you have the delegates and win, you will win. This notion that somehow or another Democrats are out there trying to put hurdles or roadblocks before one candidate, that's stupid. Well, she's very, very upset. I, when, when I debated her in Chicago a couple of years ago, She's very nice. Oh, sure. Um, or Louisiana roots and all that. I don't. I don't know. I saw. But I mean, I don't want to be told to go to hell by Donna Brazil. So maybe we shouldn't talk about the results. We should outsource it. I think uh, somebody with the standing to talk about them. He is Indiana Senator Mike Braun, and he joins us now. Senator Braun, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, good morning. And I appreciate your courage and uh, willing to talk about the Super Tuesday results, uh, you know, knowing <laughs> that you may face the ire of Donna Brazil. Um, so uh, what are we? To wow. Ma- yeah, it was something, wasn't it? What are we to make of uh, last night's results? Obviously, a good night for Biden with Bernie underperforming expectations. And that's part of the game in politics, as you know. Uh, but do you have any preference? Does the Republican caucus have any preference in who'd like they'd like to see on the top of the ticket for the other side? You know, I, I really think that it's becoming increasingly compar- uh, you know, obvious that you either got socialism or socialism light. And when you look at how this has all transpired, uh, let's go back several months ago, this probably, for the people that were prognosticating then, you know, Biden swooned and then came back and is probably in not quite as good a spot as what the prognosticators would have figured you know, four to six months ago, but he showed that he's going to be continually uh, kind of slipping up on the campaign trail. Uh, I think the brass of their party got together and uh, what you saw with uh, uh, Pete and uh, Klobuchar, um, other endorsements that came around uh, on the heels of uh, the South Carolina primary, you know, you talk about machinery kicking into place. Uh, I think that's what we've seen. And I believe in in terms of how that's going to work vis-a-vis Trump, um, I don't think it's going to make any difference at this point, because I think their platform, uh, their policy is so far out there that it's going to be a a clear contrast either way. Now, I got to ask you about uh, about uh, Mayor Pete, just because he's South Bend mayor. And I just I I don't know. I'm asking, did you ever run across him in your travels in Indiana? Do you have a relationship with him? Well, Pete has been aspiring to the big stage, um, you know, for his entire political career. You could tell that with his move to run for uh, the Democratic chair. Um, All I can tell you is in the only statewide race that he ran in Indiana, he got trounced. uh, And that was by 
uh, Richard Murdoch, who Joe Donnelly then beat. And then, you know, of course, I beat Donnelly in 2018. So I think he is an outlier uh, politically and philosophically, uh, you know, in the Hoosier state. Uh, There are a few places that uh, are going to maybe espouse that point of view of more government when it's proven that it hasn't worked. That's not the solution. And uh, you've got two or three places, enclaves in uh, a generally conservative state like Indiana, where you can survive politically, but he is not representative of uh, politics. In fact, the southern third of our state, where I'm from, used to all be blue dog Democrats. And through the Clinton and Obama years, uh, that's all converted over to it's fiscally and culturally more conservative than the rest of Indiana. And now down to the local uh, uh, county, city politics, it's uh, mostly Republican. Most people don't realize that. That's what's put us into a solid conservative uh, situation. Uh, I wanted to get to some uh, policy points, too. I mean, some of this has been overshadowed uh, uh, by the coronavirus scare as well as electoral politics. But, um, you know, interesting responses from a lot of uh, unusual quarters to the announcement that there is the outline of a peace deal with the Taliban and the removal of the remaining U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Mehdi Hassan uh, writing in The Intercept, on Afghanistan, three words I never thought I'd write. Bravo, Donald Trump. Uh, what is your reaction? What's the Republican caucus's reaction to what you understand the uh, peace agreement to be with the uh, with with America and the Taliban? I think that's just another example. Uh, I ran, uh, Trump ran, and there are a few others starting to stick their necks out. That um, is basically a reflection of business as usual. We don't want to project that into the future, whether it's in foreign affairs or domestically. And for as much uh, guff that Trump takes on anything, I think it's starting to become apparent. Uh, When you look at the agenda domestically, the economy is doing well. That's why we're going to fight through the coronavirus. Uh, It's going to be uh, a glitch, not a major uh, consideration economically. And when you look at what remember north korea iran uh all of our dealings with the taliban isis al-qaeda it wasn't being knocked out of the park before trump got there and something different is the simplest deduction to make and i think we're starting to see these occur one by one on the foreign front and the domestic front and it's a spoil sport when you can't be for that And sadly, that's where the Democrats are. If Trump does it, they don't like it. Um, And I think they'll pay the price for that. Getting back to uh, coronavirus, uh, the administration's response, are you satisfied with it? And uh, how do you react to the uh, effort to politicize it by some in Democrat ranks? Well, uh, on the uh, day where we had the uh, behind closed doors briefing, uh, the main spinner, and I call it the uh, Uh, Schumer shuffle, just like an impeachment. That's why I stepped forward there. There weren't many on our side willing to articulate. You do jump into the shark tank with media because they're trying to always catch you in a uh, difficult spot. But when it came to coronavirus, uh, they were extrapolating all the worst that could occur. And we were really, and everyone knew it, the best prepared of any country, regardless of how it unfolds. China, obviously, is one that 
had to learn the hard way. And uh, I'll give them credit that they did do everything to contain it. Trump was smart to cut off travel back and forth. That's why it gave us a little bit of uh, time to react. And we had the CDC, uh, the NIH, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, the FDA, everyone uh, standing alert. And that is why you still see media trying to take, sadly, where most of our extreme instances have occurred in a nursing facility uh, on the West Coast, and then they'll pick some point to accent, like not getting the test kits out quickly enough and broadly enough. Uh, that, again, I think people see through it. Uh, all along, I was quite confident that we were in good shape. Appointing uh, VP Pence to be the point person was smart. And then you got Chuck Schumer out there doing what he did in impeachment, running down to the sticks, to the microphone, to try to spin it otherwise. He is Mike Braun. He's the Republican senator from Indiana, one of the two. Boy, it must be nice to have two Republican senators. Senator Braun, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us, as always. Appreciate it. You bet. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show with uh, so much discussion about china over the last uh, three and a half years of the trump term both in terms of trade and now in terms of uh, well, in terms of trade, in terms of repression and violence, not just in Hong Kong, but obviously with against Uyghur Muslims, with the Falun Gong before them, and now with the coronavirus. One wonders what the future of China is and the future of the U.S.'s relationship with China. So I was interested in this write-up at uh, FEED, Foundation for Economic Education, by Dr. Rainier Zeidelman, who is a, uh, a German historian and social scientist, also a successful investor. He writes about his recent trip to the coastal province of Guangdong with its capital, Guangzhou, which has been um, really a sort of at the tip of the spear for of, of market reforms in China, seen as an entrepreneurial center. One of the things that he included in his write-up was his discussion with uh, a lot of people, various pursuits here, all of whom are very interested in capitalism effectively, revere entrepreneurs like Steve Jobs and Jack Ma, for that matter are not um, reading from Mao's Little Red Book or the Marx-Engels reader. One professor he spoke with, who's not a member of the Communist Party. Here in China, hardly anyone still believes in Karl Marx's ideas. Well, don't tell, tell that to President Xi and some of the members of the, college, uh, the Politburo there. But uh, nonetheless, it was interesting, as he describes it, that uh, you don't have young people talking in the parlance of climate change hysteria and the like. You have young people talking in the, how do I get ahead? What do I need to do to get rich? What do I need to do to improve my quality of life? And those were the discussions that he was having. I wonder how ubiquitous those are. For more on this antecedent topics I discuss, please be joined by Sarah Cook, Senior Research Analyst and China Media Bulletin Director for Freedom House, author of The Battle for China's Spirit. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. What about uh, the review, as at least my summary of it, uh, from Dr. Rainier Zeidelman about his 
his trip to Guangdong and how representative that is of perhaps a transformation occurring in Chinese society? Well, I think it reflects something that has been clear for some time, which is there are many parts of Chinese society that are really much more liberal and open and modern and desirous of greater freedoms, be they political or economic, than the Communist Party and the Communist Party leaders that rule China. And I think that's one of the reasons, actually, why we see such a turn towards deeper repression in China by Xi, because usually authoritarian regimes that have the kind of real legitimacy that is needed to maintain power, they actually don't have to use quite as heavy a hand as we've seen under Xi. But it's actually precisely because there has been a modernization and opening and a a greater access to information of people in China that the Communist Party is so afraid. And I think what we're seeing with the coronavirus along with the various other situations that have happened in recent years, is that, again, a new resurgence and a new situation where the legitimacy of the Communist Party has really taken a hit. And so you have various groups of people who might otherwise think of themselves as apolitical or being willing to tolerate the social contract with the CCP of less political freedom in exchange for economic advancement, questioning that more. And that's when you see hashtags like I want free speech starting to really trend. Of course, then you have the manipulation of the censors making that disappear. And you also have arrests. Uh, You talk about repression. So on Friday, uh, Jimmy Lai, who's a a publisher, a Wall Street Journal contributor, was arrested in Hong Kong after writing an article in the journal about Chinese communist system that was less than complimentary. Two former pro-democracy lawmakers also arrested, charged with participating in the same protest that Lai was charged with participating in. How is that being received from those uh, pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong as well as on the mainland? Well, I mean, I think in Hong Kong, people just see it as this really opportunistic attempt, basically an attempt by the Hong Kong authorities, maybe to use the distraction of coronavirus, maybe to just take this kind of politicized move against Jimmy Lai and these other pro-democracy activists at a time when actually the protests have been subsided, had been subsiding, but because of the virus. And I think it actually had a real backlash because you actually saw the last couple of days and over the weekend, the first round of protests that we've seen since the outbreak, because people were being more hesitant about coming onto the streets. And so I think it actually, these kinds of actions, you know, it's not just a matter of galvanizing. It just highlights the deep irony and hypocrisy of the Hong Kong government in the way it's dealt with the protest movement, because this very protest at the date that Mr. Lai and and these other pro-democracy activists have been uh, you know, arrested for participating in is the same date that riot police burst into a metro station and indiscriminately started beating people they thought of as protesters, but also ordinary commuters. And there has been no real accountability for the police who did that. So the idea that someone who peacefully participated in a protest would be arrested, that's only one example of the police brutality that has happened in the last you know, during the protest movement, that there's been such impunity, it just really reinforced it. So I think it just galvanized more anger on the part of people in Hong Kong. I'm not sure how much the news spread inside China, but I think what you see in China are similar situations where, you know, action is being taken, even while everybody's talking about the coronavirus and steps are being taken. But other types of actions against political activists, whether they be the lawyer Xu Juyong being arrested in Guangdong or Guanyin Hai, this bookseller who is now sentenced to 10 years and basically forced um, to revoke 
and renounce his Swedish citizenship. So I think all of these, what they have in common, are parts of the party's repressive apparatus, basically continuing what they tend to do um, and maybe even potentially taking advantage of the international distractions surrounding the coronavirus to move move against um, particular political enemies that they deem as being especially dangerous for them. What is the the Chinese people's assessment of their government's response to the coronavirus? In, you know, in a country the size of China and with the level of censorship, it's hard to get a precise read, obviously. But yeah. from what we see in terms of outbursts on social media, as well as content that's being, you know, censored but then revived outside of the Great Firewall, um, is there's a lot of anger and frustration. Um, I think one of the things that's been really um, courageous and interesting to see um, is that you do have some uh, publications that are on the more autonomous end of the spectrum, um, sending journalists and really trying to dig up what really happened in the early days, um, the way in which a cover-up was done, trying to get some sense for, you know, what are the actual infection rates despite the official figures. And a lot of that content, before it gets censored, uh, is circulating widely. And people are just seeing the way in which the propaganda apparatus and the state-run media who are doing this, this coverage, I mean, if you look at the front page of the People's Daily, the Communist Party's uh, a mouthpiece, uh, it's just so separated from reality. The entire month of January, and even after the officials admitted about the coronavirus, it's about all these stories of Xi Jinping going to visit people because they had already decided they were going to do a look back at how great Xi Jinping was visiting ordinary Chinese citizens instead of about the virus. Mm. And so people see, and then, you know, they have these stories about supposed heroism and fa- sacrifice, but people kind of see through this. And so people are getting angry at some of the clips. So there was like a clip basically about on Chinese state television of a nurse fighting coronavirus coronavirus who is nine months pregnant and a lot of people on social media were saying what are you doing what are you talking about this isn't heroic send her home don't let a woman who's nine months pregnant be on the front line of this type of dangerous virus so you see that kind of real backlash it makes them think twice and question that apparatus much more she is sarah cook senior research analyst in china media bulletin director for freedom house author as well of the battle for china's spirit sarah cook thanks so much for joining us appreciate it my pleasure. Cheer up, sleepy Jean. Oh, what can it mean? You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Uh, so Christian Toto over at uh, HollywoodandToto.com. Uh, has informed me that uh, the uh, cast of Friends, that show that uh, ran, you know, like uh, about a 10-year run, I think it was like 94 to 2004, I was watching Frasier. I'm not much of a Friends fan, but nonetheless, uh, obviously it was quite popular, thus the 10-year run. That cast will reunite for a one-time only event to be shown on HBO Max this coming May. Uh, Why am I talking about a show I didn't? particularly watch or care for and some insufferable reunion so that uh, each of them can make a few more million bucks. The David Schwimmers and the Jennifer Aniston's and the, I don't know who are the rest. Oh yeah. The Matthew Perry's and the uh, Courtney Cox's and so forth. Um, yeah. It's not because uh, of the beautiful people. It's uh, because of, what will ultimately be a feature of this reunion. 
And uh, per the announcement, the other shoe already dropped. What's the other shoe? Going back and looking at Friends episodes for the decade that it ran and identifying anything that was inappropriate. And by inappropriate, I mean not woke, not reflective of Joe Biden's values, not reflective of the cultural Marxism that infects Hollywood. Holly Thomas writing at CNN. Of course she is. The reunion is a timely opportunity for fans and new observers to ponder exactly why many people still love the show and to ask and to ask what the hopefully older, wiser group of friends might potentially acknowledge on the Central Perk sofa this time around. That's this you know coffee shop they hung around in. Uh, the uh, reunion, writes Holly Thomas, might take a stab about the original show's glaring lack of diversity. Yeah. No problem with uh, the show Living Single at the time, which was uh, black female friends. But uh, the, there was a problem uh, with uh, Friends, the, that show, because uh, all the principals were white. Terrible. Isn't that terrible? That's uh, not the only thing. You know, they didn't tackle the salient issues of the day. They weren't uh, fighting the man and resisting, uh, I don't know, who would you resist in the mid-90s when Bill Clinton was president? Well, I mean, maybe towards the end of the show when, when uh, George W. Bush won in 2000, but then you had 9-11, and so that wasn't a particularly good time to resist as the country actually came together for a change. Uh, But anyway, they uh, just stayed static, as Holly Thomas writes, in a cozy middle-class bubble. Isn't that terrible? Middle-income white people? Middle-income young white people in a a friend circle? Could there anything be more offensive? On rare occasions when someone who didn't fit the mold appeared on Friends, Thomas goes on, they were were used as a foil for the main L'Oreal-ready cast experience. Uh, Kathleen Turner played... Chandler's, that's the Matthew Perry character, apparently but not explicitly transgender dad. But the the identity of Chandler's dad was never addressed straight on in the show. It wasn't, you know, flamboyant RuPaul style where they all sat around and talked about it. There are other LGBTQ concerns as well, writes Holly Thomas. One of the show's longest running jokes was that Ross was dumped by his first wife for another woman. While it was unusual in the 90s to feature a gay female couple on TV, particularly groundbreaking for its time to feature them as parents, that visibly is undermined by the main joke being that it's embarrassing for Ross to have been dumped for another woman. You can't make jokes about that. You know, it's not like it's a sitcom. (sighs) Just this remarkable piece, and I'm sure there will be more like it because it is one big echo chamber. will uh, uh, it just just, just tells you everything you need to know about the censorious culture. And you don't have to have it be directed by a politician or the state. It's uh, very much peer to peer, as we'll tackle in our campus beat segment coming up. Very much peer to peer. Imagine the press coverage if they don't cover it, writes Christian Toto in his write up on the write up. Today's stars from the no names to the biggest actors on the planet know going woke is the only acceptable path. Heck, if A-list superstar Scarlett Johansson bowed to the PC police not once but twice, uh, 
you know, uh, turning down roles, then everyone who steps foot in front of a camera today will have to toe the woke line. Indeed, they will. And hopefully what is becoming uh, a cliche about uh, our culture, if go woke, go broke, will continue to be visited upon Hollywood and their Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Bauerline, who's an English professor at Emory University, friend of the show. Uh, he uh, brings this to us via Minding the, ha- the Campus.org. The power of liberal peer condemnation on conservatives. And uh, since we're all on a college campus now, you should uh, hear this if you're on a college campus, of course. But if you're not in adult and professional life, the same dynamic is at play. How many times do you hear... You know, people talk about being secretly a Trump supporter, but they won't tell anybody because they don't want to get castigated. So uh, Bauerlein uh, brings us a study uh, by two professors at North Carolina Chapel Hill. The uh, researchers there began by issuing a questionnaire to undergrads, a questionnaire that was uh, distributed to 20,000 Tar Heels in total, They got back uh, a little over a thousand completed responses. The survey asked students how many times a number of questions, including how many times in one selected class had they kept their opinions to themselves out of fear of reprisal. Liberal students, self-identified liberals, three quarters of them said they never kept their opinions quiet out of fear of retribution of any kind. Only a third of conservatives said they never did. 45 point spread three quarters of liberals never felt the need to keep their opinions quiet. Uh, and, uh, two thirds of conservatives did effectively. Um, Bauerlein makes this important point. Think, Oh yeah. The professors there, what are the professors like at, uh, ABC university, the administrators, we talk a lot about that. What about the other students? That's what this survey gets to the peer pressure. The peer-to-peer censorship, if you will, the peer-to-peer culture that's created, the censorious culture that's created. Researchers asked respondents how their peers would react to them uh, uh, in terms of uh, if they express their opinions, how their peers would react to them if they express their opinions. Seventy-five percent of conservative kids stated their peers would have a lower opinion of them if they expressed their sincere political views in class. Liberal students, only 26 percent said the same. Again, 50-point spread. Three-quarters of conservative kids said their peers at college would have a lower opinion of them, and that's really what's driving them 
uh, from withholding their views in class, whereas only one quarter of liberal students thought the same. Another question asks students how frequently they hear disrespectful, inappropriate, or offensive comments about certain groups on campus. One of the 12 groups was political conservatives. How often do you hear disrespectful, inappropriate, or offensive comments about certain groups? Uh, political conservatives, and then other ident- women, men, uh, the different races. Political conservatives, number one. 57% of liberal respondents stated that they heard disrespectful, inappropriate, or offensive comments about conservatives several times per semester or more. The next highest group chosen by liberals, women at 32%, men at 25%, whites 22%, blacks 20%, and on down the line. Wide margin. Uh, we, uh, and Bauerlein makes the point, when we talk about repression, the uh, repression from peers, that the rebel angle is unavailable. Uh, students get hammered by some leftist professor And, you know, they can band together to strike back at authority, raise the profile uh, so that people like us talk about a particular professor who is anti-intellectual, anti-academic freedom. And you rail against that professor, that administrator, that institution. What about uh, when it's just other classmates? A little bit more complicated. There's no power imbalance. We have instead a college version of peer pressure and cliquishness, writes Bauerlein. It lets the profs and the administration off the hook, especially when they themselves are nervous about fractious students. This is such an interesting study because think about your peers as adults in your social, professional uh, and communitarian circles. Are you willing to express your opinions? Let me think about that in the context of the 2020 presidential election, as I said. Are you going to be willing to make the case for Trump, for example, make the case for Ives against Kasten? Make the case for whoever's running against uh, whoever the nominee is against Underwood. Make the case for particular senators in other states where you have friends or professional colleagues. Will you make the case or are you just going to kind of keep your head down and avoid the fray for fear of some sort of reprisal, either personal or professional? That's something to really consider. And also something else to consider. Where does this come from? Where does what uh, these two professors at UNC Chapel Hill observed through their questionnaires of undergrads uh, at North Carolina, at University of North Carolina, where does that come from? Where you have a majority of a particular, uh, a particular college classes that are censorious in nature, that create a culture where free expression is not encouraged. In point of fact, they're a Praetorian guard for ideas that they don't like, that they, you know, they shall not enter. K through 12 school systems. So are you willing to stand up and make your opinions known about how children should be educated? K through 12 school systems, like the one you send your kids to. That's a whole other question, isn't it?
you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And at the end of the first hour, we talked about uh, a uh, bar owner in Chicago who is drinking beer and only beer, no other food, taking some vitamins too, uh, for his uh, Lenten sacrifice. Uh, now we turn to orphan monkeys forced to serve beers and play air hockey with kids in bar jobs. It's funny, I remember I saw orphan monkeys open for fine young cannibals at Chicago Stadium in uh, 87. They were qu- quite good. Uh, anyway, these uh, orphan monkeys, macaques uh, in Japan, are being made to serve beer in bars and play, play air hockey with kids. Thousands of macaques are killed each year in Japan, according to this report in the Daily Star, one of the tabloids across the pond, after being recorded by angry farmers for destroying fruit and vegetable crops. Mm, bad monkeys. Uh, so one of the things that they've done with the babies, uh, is, uh, entertainment groups have gotten their hands on the orphaned monkeys. They're trained to fuel the Japanese's insatiable appetite for monkey performance. (laughs) I mean, not Babylon B, not the onion. There is an actual Japanese name for monkey performance. It's known as Saramwashi. Okay. Modern interpretations include disciplined troops of monkeys being made to perform slapstick aerobatic play, acrobatic plays while dressed in little costumes for the amusement of children and adults alike. I mean, it does sound somewhat entertaining. Some primates even become the main in-house entertainment in bars and amusement arcades. Uh, this is a phenomenon that's well documented on social media feeds. Uh, macaques are made to serve ice cold beers and ha- hand out warm towels to cheering patrons, all while dressed up in costumes and masks to resemble well-known figures, including U.S. President Donald Trump. Well, well since they're serving a beer and handing out towels, you know, they're acting as a waitress. Are any of them dressed up like AOC? Just asking. Perhaps they could backfill her position. I'm talking about in Congress. Uh, elsewhere, macaques dressed in little play suits are made to entertain children by challenging them to games of air hockey at an entertainment complex in Nico City. Uh, one of the uh, main uh, on the main outdoor stage in uh, uh, the mountains of Tokyo, National Geographic, uh, in the mountains of Tokyo, uh, a roadside attraction. Main outdoor stage, a male macaque is in a in a kimono, struck macho poses and leaped over high hurdles. Later, a comedy show parroting a popular TV crime show was put on. And, of course, um, PETA, those knuckleheads, are outraged by this. Uh, I I don't know. Perhaps they're not being paid a living wage or something like this. Anyway, um, I don't know. I just think it's kind of entertaining. I I didn't know it was so central to Japanese culture. It doesn't really offend me if the uh, monkeys are not otherwise being abused. And there's no real indication that they are. And, um, you know... They probably have better acting chops than uh, the cast of Friends. This is Dan Proft. Just like a monkey, I've been dancing my whole life. You just beg to see me dance just one more time. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. 
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Good piece uh, in the uh, Wall Street Journal by Adena Friedman, who is the uh, president and CEO of NASDAQ about uh, capital and coronavirus. Markets aren't merely resilient to public health crises, she writes. They're also a major means by which such emergencies are resolved. Capital is part of the cure. Markets respond to new information during shocks, efficiently allocating capital, allowing investors to express their thinking in real time. Investors are flocking to drug maker Gilead Sciences, which amid the coronavirus epidemic has been expanding clinical trials of remdesivir, an antiviral drug initially developed to combat Ebola. She adds that over the past five years, 426 new healthcare and biotech companies have had initial public offerings on the NASDAQ. Together, they've raised more than $40 billion with an average return to investors of 23% in their first year. One of them, Moderna, announced February 24th that it had shipped vials containing a, a first batch of coronavirus vaccine to the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Uh, for the purposes of clinical trials, uh, which are expected to begin in April. Uh, Moderna stock uh, up nearly 50% from February 3rd, a clear sign that capital is flowing to medical innovation. Uh, Boy, that's an an important aspect of this discussion amid this uh, crisis with this viral outbreak about those pharma companies and those entrepreneurs who are otherwise being pilloried on the debate stages for the Democrat Party as we look towards a November election, you really want to place your uh, unmitigated faith in politicians on those debate stages? Or do you have an appreciation for what an entrepreneurial-oriented economy produces in terms of life-saving, life-saving drugs and responses to crises? For more on this, Pleased to be joined by our friend again, uh, Jonathan Honig, the capitalist pig, also the author of A New Textbook of Americanism, The Politics of Ayn Rand. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, my pleasure. And to your comments, I just have to say a resounding hell yeah. Okay, you're Donna Brazil. Uh, Don't don't, don't you Donna Brazil me. I'm kidding. (laughs) No, no. That's go to hell. You're saying a hell yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. From any of life's maladies, uh, hunger or poverty, and certainly something as serious as the coronavirus, it's not going to be government bureaucrats with central planning that's going to fix it. It's going to be exactly as you said, the entrepreneurial, profit-seeking innovators, business people uh, of all different political stripes that create the solutions, create the values that improve our lives. Everything from the iPhone to the hamburger and most certainly something as detailed and complicated as a vaccine to this most serious virus. Well, and it's sort of interesting, too, isn't it? I mean, we we have respect and we should for uh, those doctors and professionals like uh, like Tony Fauci, the head of NIH's uh, Allergy and Infectious Disease Division, uh, when they uh, when they're telling us something under the color of government. Well, I mean, who do you think is involved in the development of these antiviral uh, therapeutic uh, remedies as well as vaccines. Well, it, it's infectious and allergy disease experts. Uh, they're just working in the private sector. They, there's they're sort of given status in the public sector and you know part of big pharma, this nefarious organization in the private sector. And and I think we need to change that impression a bit. 
absolutely, first and foremost, getting rid of this demonization of, look, big business writ large, but most certainly pharmaceutical companies, big and small. Look, these these are the entrepreneurs, as you said. These are the companies that are. I mean, look, they're literally miracle workers. We can debate about the, you know, importance of some app or uh, even a mapping solution on your phone, but pharmaceutical companies create the miracles. And, and you know, ultimately, Dan, what what government does is stand in the way. I mean, even with the response to the coronavirus, there's been multiple reports of CDC protocols essentially getting in the way not only of testing but in the development and delivery of, of, rem- of potential remedies. And it almost makes you think, my God, if they came up with aspirin today, I mean, do you think aspirin would be available over the counter? Hell no. You'd require probably a, a doctor's signature and, and three confirmations from the insurance company to get it. Thankfully, aspirin came before this big government safety net that we now have. Well, and, and, and that doesn't mean that uh, the private sector is always right, but they pay a price for being wrong and they can adjust. And uh, on that score, I raised this issue Ninety percent of the finished drugs Americans take are generics, most manufactured overseas, primarily in India and China. Even India, the world's largest generics producer, relies on China for 80 percent of the uh, APIs, the uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients it uses in drug production. And so when you talk about global supply chains and you talk about in the context of pharma, you're talking about China. And uh, this from a piece in City Journal by uh, Dr. Joel Zinberg. Uh, And so. Is it time for not by government mandate, but by um, market response and risk assessment? Is it time for pharmaceutical companies, in addition to companies in other sectors, to reconsider where uh, the key components of its supply chains are located, like, say, in China? Well, they're, they're certainly doing that. They're certainly doing that, Dan. I mean, they were doing that as a result, unfortunately, of uh, the trade war. But specifically, my sense is. Uh, companies are considering their supply chains in China, not even so much because of the potential for coronavirus, although they are responding, of course, you know, canceling meetings, pulling their employees out, but really by the actions of the Chinese government, you know, the increasingly authoritarian uh, actions of the Chinese government to interfere with certain businesses, in many cases, take over certain businesses. I think that's ultimately a much bigger threat to corporations doing business in China. And perhaps one reason a lot of them will want to move ultimately their supply chain. But then you can't get around the, the fact of the ratter here is that, look, it is a global economy. We are an interconnected whole as an economy. And it's why the issues in China are not just affecting China, but affecting American companies and, of course, our market and economy here at home. And uh, just one more sort of point on this to try and illustrate some of the underlying principles of uh of a, a society that believes in free markets, not uh, government-centric uh, uh, rent-seeking uh, uh, method of organizing the economy. Uh, Jack Welch, the passing of Jack Welch, is a sort of innovative CEO, the CEO, CEO, a former CEO of G- uh, General Electric, who did an incredible job there. Steve Forbes had an interesting piece about uh, Welch, uh, what became of GE after Jack Welch, which is, you know, it's a, obviously a shadow of its former self under Jack Welch. But he, he said that, look, Jack Welch also made one big mistake during his time at GE. He was too, uh, and GE was too slow to adapt to emerging technologies, too slow to embrace uh, technological innovation, too bureaucratic. And GE paid a huge price for not seeing the technological innovations that were on the horizon. Isn't that the beauty, then, of our vibrant 
I wouldn't say it's a total free market, but it's about the closest to get it anywhere in the world. We always say, oh, what about these evil big corporations taking over? In a, in a free market, you really don't have that. I mean, every couple of years, you have a new – I mean, I remember, as I'm sure you do, when it was Walmart that was going to take over the world, and then it was going to Microsoft going to take over the world, and now it's Amazon's going to take over the world. In a free market, every couple of decades, you have new leaders, new entrepreneurs, and technology is probably the best example. I mean, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, perhaps even Joe Biden talking about cracking down on you know Google and Amazon – it, you know, it was just 15 years ago we were talking about Motorola and Nokia. Those were the big tech behemoths that were you know, monopolizing and taking over. Or Ericsson or, or even Cisco. In a vibrant economy, you always have new leadership, new entrepreneurs, new people coming up to nip at leaders' heels. So as long as we can remain free, Dan, we're going to remain prosperous. And that's what all these presidential candidates should be talking about. Of course, they're not. Uh, I wanted to get your reaction to what I uh, described as responding to panic with panic. I'm talking about the Fed's 50 basis point cut in the interest rate yesterday after the big sell off last week uh, to, quote unquote, stabilize uh, the markets. That's what Jerome Powell said. What do you say? Well, you know, the Fed is in a possible situation, man, because as central planners, they're going to be wrong no matter what they do. Uh, this, you know, trying to set the quote right right rate for tens and tens of millions, billions of transactions uh, around the country and around the economy are it's virtually impossible. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that the economy looks very weak, and it's not just because of the coronavirus. I mean, even heading into this terrible uh, tragedy, uh, growth was slowing in Europe. It was certainly slowing in Asia and even in China. So the very fact of the matter is, is that why this virus itself will get resolved, it might have been the, you know, what do they say, the straw that tipped the camel's back, essentially pushing the global economy into recession. Now, the Fed might be ultimately too late because, Dan, as I know you've talked about, it's not as if saving a couple bucks on your mortgage necessarily, you know, prompts people to go out to eat that much more or you know, spend that much more when it comes to their expenses. So the U.S. economy is in a pretty tenuous shape. We're certainly the best when it comes worldwide, but the Fed is responding to what it's seeing, slowing growth uh, here and abroad. He is the capitalist pig, Jonathan Honig, author of the book, A New Textbook of Americanism, The Politics of Ayn Rand. Jonathan, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. Be well, Dan. Thank you. Take care. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So the uh, big news from yesterday is that Jimmy Kimmel ripped me off. Pete Buttigieg was an important candidate. He was the first openly gay frontrunner for a major party. He was also the first candidate to dress like he worked at Office Max every single day. <laughs> Mayor Pete is expected to go back to his job working as a mannequin at Gap Kids. Mannequin at Gap Kids. I mean, that has a little bit of a, also a little bit of an unseemly overtone where I was purely comedic and fun loving in my characterization. So, I mean, I, you know, I, if I could borrow from Donna Brazil, Hey, Jimmy Kimmel, go to hell. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of you stealing my stuff. I want to check. Oh yeah. And then uh, Joe Biden had a good night and Bernie didn't for more on that. We're pleased to be joined by Rich Lowry, editor of national review and Fox news contributor, as well as author of the case for nationalism, how it made us powerful, united and free rich. Thanks for joining us. 
Hey, thanks for having me. So um, the uh, handle last night into this morning is that uh, let's all get ready for uh, Joe Biden as the nominee to face Donald Trump. He's all of, you know, 70 delegates ahead with a lot of states to go and uh, a lot of vulnerabilities. Do you I mean, I I understand the momentum is with him, South Carolina, to overperforming last night relative to expectations. But do you think this is over? I think he has a significant advantage and is the front runner again, astonishingly enough. I mean, there have been comebacks before, John Kerry in 04, McCain in 08. But those guys were left for dead and came back before the voting started. This Joe Biden finished fourth and fifth in Iowa and New Hampshire. His best showing was a distant second in Nevada. Then he, he wins South Carolina by 30 points and within three days transforms the race utterly and has a 30 and 40 point surge places. I mean, this is the most astonishing political comeback we have seen. Now, one of the ironies, and what I'm about to say is really paradoxical and counterintuitive, you don't need to be a good candidate when you're winning by 30 points. And, and that's the thing. The black vote just lifted Biden up in South Carolina made him viable, made him the quote-unquote electable candidate again, and then everyone flocked to him. But we haven't seen him you know, perform under a microscope like a frontrunner has to in a while now. So he's going to get that scrutiny again. There's obviously uh, major performance problems with Biden. Bernie's going to take the wood to him and not going to you know, go, go slipping out into that great good night uh, quietly. But there's a geographic advantage now for Biden. And the dynamic that seemed like it was going to apply to Bernie, which is once you get ahead in a proportional representation race, it's hard to track you down, now applies to Biden. And, you know, Bernie's going to win places. Bernie could win in Michigan very easily next week. But the problem he's going to have is a problem he had last night, which he'll win places somewhat narrowly. You know, Michigan will probably be close. So he won't get many delegates out of it. Whereas Biden is going to smash him in places like Mississippi, Georgia, Florida. You put Florida and Georgia together, that's that's a, a Texas or almost a California. I think they're 300-something delegates. So I think what Bernie's looking at now is just all of a sudden, within the course of three days after running for president for four years after 2016, he's back to 2016. He's a step behind, close you know, and competitive, but a step behind an established front establishment front runner that he probably can't run down. Well, and here's the thing, too, right? He, he knew this going in. Um, the problem he has is he just has very limited appeal to black voters. And Joe Biden, I think I saw the exit polling, Joe Biden winning black voters 57 to 17, that, yeah. which is why he rolled through the South. Uh, and, you know, and, and that momentum also with the establishment rallying around him and then that being amplified by their friends in the, the media helped him surprise in Massachusetts and, and Minnesota, perhaps Maine as well. But uh, he, he can't he has almost zero appeal to a quarter of the Democrat primary electorate. And you just can't win a national election that way. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's true. He didn't he widened out a little bit among blacks, uh, young blacks. Um, he widened out a little bit racially from 2016 because Sanders really worked the Hispanic vote and made has made unroads there. But the, the where he didn't wind out, uh, widen out is ideologically, and then this is sort of the key demographic that doesn't get as much focus in terms of age. You know, yeah, there's, right. there's no old people who are going to vote for Bernie Sanders, and I think it's because they have memories of what socialism really is, and they're old enough not to get caught up in delusions of a coming revolution. So that really crimps. Bernie. But look, you know, the worm has turned a couple times in this race. So uh, any certain, any uh, great certain state, statements made of great certainty have proven false largely. So we should have a little modesty about what happened, uh, what, what's going to happen here. But it's, it's clear Bernie 
is a step behind. First on Elizabeth Warren and that glass ceiling you're imposing on her, which is just uh, despicable <laughs> to me. Uh, she persists, Rich. That's what she does. She persists and just get used to it. Yeah, so she's gone or effectively gone. What about, well, actually, I want to go back to what you just said. Joe Biden's uh, coalition. That's a coalition after the other candidates were measured and found wanting, much like the candidates against Romney in 2012 on the Republican side. And that coalition is among Democrats in a Democrat primary. Joe Biden has is was left and has been pushed exceedingly further left uh, in the primary on guns with announcing Beto as his gun czar on yeah. uh, imprisoning fossil fuel company executives because they're fossil fuel companies. I mean, this is that his appeal in a general election with actual swing voters or blue dog Democrats who voted for Trump. That's a whole different kettle of fish. True. Absolutely true. Yeah, it's, it's a very good point, and he's gotten pushed and will be, you know, effectively uh, owned by the left. There, there's no way Biden, if he's president, is, is not going to push, push for the left most plausible health care plan. It's just that, that he's more realistic about what you can get uh, than Bernie is. But I think that the, the problem for Biden, um, so the problem for Republicans or the threat to, to Trump is obviously they're going to make a, a huge amount of uh, Biden's gaffe. Obviously, there's a performance issue there where you kind of even wonder whether he can make it through a, a general election without imploding in some uh, high-pressure uh, moment. Plus, they'll, they'll make a lot of, you know, this is the ultimate Washington insider, and his family's gotten really rich. Right. So, so those, are, those are things they can really hit him on. The problem is, is with Hillary, Hillary had been around for decades, and everyone was used to hating her. And Biden, you know, a lot of people, we have sort of uh, a casual uh, – contempt for him, but it's sort of tinged with a certain amount of amusement, and I don't think he, he, he's, he's not hated the same way. Now, maybe he will be by, by November. You know, that's, that's the way our politics works. Um, but he's not, in that respect, he's not a Hillary-like figure. Well, right, and so, so the, the Trump play, if you're advising the Trump campaign, and you have the, sort of this combination of vulnerabilities that, to some extent, you could argue uh, you have to pick one. He's incompetent. He doesn't clear the, the competency threshold, or he's corrupt and he leverages public office to enrich himself and his family, uh, a la Hillary Clinton. Uh, well, if he's this sort of corrupt mastermind, then it's hard to also argue he's a, a buffoon, too. So which mm -hmm. is it? Yeah, um, that, that's that's a good point. I, I'd go tend to go, you know, the, the performance stuff, you know, Trump will nail him on it, you know, and he'll nail him on it in the way he, he always does, which is like makes it really hard for you to respond without playing on his territory. And then he then he hits really painfully on something that's true, right? And yeah. and there might be something. I hope there isn't. There might be something with, going on with Biden. It might just be, you know, uh, age fifty. You, you begin to have trouble remembering names, you know. So when you're Maybe seventy-seven and you're out on the campaign trail and you're tired, you know, it it all kind of uh, adds up. But that's going to be, you know, how's how's Biden's going to handle that? It's going to be tricky. But I, I think the the Washington insider thing. And, you know, corrupt and he pretends to be middle class Joe and different. But, you know, his brothers, his sons, they all enriched himself. Um, I, I think that could be a powerful theme that's been relatively unexplored. Like no, no Democrats have, have made that case against him. You know, Bernie's going to hit him on some ideological issues here and is already up with Social Security ads in Florida. But no one's made that attack on Biden. He is Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, Fox News contributor of the book, The Case for Nationalism, How It Made Us Powerful, United and Free. Rich, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks so much. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show and uh, discussed uh, Chris Matthews' departure from Hardball and uh, MSNBC announced on Monday night. Discussed it to some extent last night, but I'm not done. I, I want uh, a little bit more piling on here, particularly in response to the responses from his, you know, believe the accuser as a default position colleagues on MSNBC. You know, the Mikas and the Joes, Joica, the Mike Barnacles and so forth, uh, the, the, the fabulous like Brian Williams, who incredibly have a job after having conjured up stories as a newsman. Not, that is not disqualifying either. Nothing is disqualifying if you're part of the club, it would appear. And that certainly includes Me Too moments. I want to rally to Chris Matthews' defense here about this uh, Rolling Stone uh, excuse me, GQ. It was GQ. This individual, Laura Bassett, I believe her name is, who had been on Matthews' show several times. And there was an incident she recounted in an op-ed in GQ that ran on Friday where Matthews made creepy comments in her direction. Not obscene, just sort of creepy. You know, the whole, you know, you're so beautiful, uh, fall in love with you, put some more makeup on her and I'll fall in love with her. There was no touching. There was no assault. There was nothing profane. It just was a little creepy, okay? But these distinctions that are being made now for the benefit of Chris Matthews that I would make, regardless of what I think of him professionally, now you have people that are otherwise ready to pile on with the mob if the target is not particularly sympathetic to them. Uh, Like Mike Barnacle, you know, one of the morning Joe, early morning players, saying that Matthews' departure opens the door to disturbing possibilities and that his exit was simply the result of, quote-unquote, toxic outrage. So now we've gone from masculinity being toxic to outrage about masculinity being toxic. Well, I guess in certain cases. It turns out, by the way, that Matthews' wife went to MSNBC Brass, all the way to the top, actually, Phil Griffin, and talked about a more limited role for Matthews on MSNBC because she was afraid that his antics, like uh, comparing Bernie Sanders voters to Nazis the week before, we're going to tarnish his legacy, whatever that is. Well, actually, let me tell you what it is. What it is, as I started saying yesterday, but I wanted it, and I did get the defense of Matthews here, the context of it, whether that is a terminable offense, a cancelable offense, and it's not, okay? It's not. You can't be sort of self-actualized women who can take care of themselves and also not be able to express displeasure with somebody's advance on to you or how somebody addresses you yeah, interpersonally rather than waiting to cobble together an op-ed for uh, GQ magazine and, uh, you know, leverage the event for, I don't know, something else, sainted victimhood status. Come on. But back to Chris Matthews's legacy, as I started to say last night, but I wanted to get to more clips to really punctuate it. All of the prattling on from these same people about civil discourse and all of the histrionics about President Trump's course discourse. And sometimes I agree with them. But my point is these people have no standards. They have, you know, these are my principles. If you don't like them, I have others depending on the individual and circumstances rather than the behavior. That's what's despicable. And and Chris Matthews was one of the original cable news bloviators who made demagoguery fashionable. Let me give you an example. Here's Chris Matthews talking uh, in the context of Obama's reelection in 2012. If only the people who voted in 2010 show up this November, you can kiss all this goodbye. 
You'll see the beginning of the end to what could have been, what many of us believe should have been, an historic turn toward full democratic government in this country, where everyone has a chance for the top office, where everyone is looked after by those in power. It will mean Republican control of both the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate, and with that, a slow, grinding effort to kill not just the president's health care plan, but his presidency itself and the legacy it promised. It will be a double downing of efforts to suppress the votes of those who voted for him in historic numbers. A return to something like Jim Crow days, redolent of all the old anti-black gimmickry of that time. Literacy tests and poll taxes and all the rest. The goal will be to erase not just Obama from the history books, but any evidence that someone of his background should ever think of being president. It will mean victory for the haters. Uh, Mitt Romney and Republicans winning in 2012 would have meant a return to the Jim Crow literacy tests and poll taxes. And we're supposed to treat him as some sort of responsible observer of the political scene, much less a one-time alleged journalist. Oh, and just to update you, uh, how about Inauguration Day for President Trump? It's hard to, uh, Rachel, it's hard to fire your son-in-law. Yeah. That's the tricky part. That's why the nepotism lost there. But Mussolini had a great solution to that. He had him executed. So it's... uh, Oh, Jesus Christ. So so if I were Jared, I'd be a little careful. All the people who are waiting for the mention of Mussolini have just started drinking. Mm -hmm. Trump, uh, comparing Trump to Mussolini. Jared, watch your back. On Inauguration Day. And uh, everybody on that MSNBC set giggling right along. Please, lecture me some more on civil discourse. Good riddance, as I said last night, I say again, good riddance, Chris Matthews, at least professionally. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. The biggest comeback since Lazarus? No, I'm not talking about Joe Biden. I'm talking about Bibi Netanyahu. How about uh, Bibi winning yet another election, the biggest of his career, because it sustains it. Now, the question still be, uh, remains whether or not he can put together a governing coalition. There's also a question that remains about his pending trial on corruption charges. And to help us answer all of those questions, I can't think of anybody better. We're pleased to be joined by our friend Michael Medved, host of The Michael Medved Show, member of USA Today's Board of Contributors, and author of God's Hand on America, Divine Providence in the Modern Era. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. You bet, Dan. Great to speak to you. And uh, the only thing more complicated than Super Tuesday was uh, Super Monday in yes. Israel. Yes, yes. The most recent election, where it, it's almost like Groundhog Day, because if you go back to April of last year, uh, which was the first of the three elections that they've had, the results were almost identical to what BB did this time. And the difficulty is, on St. Patrick's Day, he's supposed to start his trial, his trial on bribery, corruption, and breach of trust. And it's not like an impeachment trial. This is a, a criminal trial. Right now, he won very clearly. He got more votes than his leading opponent. But if you count the Arab list, uh, which is 15 seats in the parliament, there are probably enough votes. They're going to be debating soon, uh, maybe even starting today, a, a resolution to pass a new law barring BB from serving while he's undergoing trial. And because of the Arab votes, 15 of them in Parliament, uh, they may have uh, enough 
to actually pass that law and to prevent Bibi from taking office or keeping office. And, and what, what he really wanted to accomplish was ha- to have a, enough uh, enough colleagues get elected so that he could uh, uh, in, enact the so-called French law, right, which would prevent a sitting prime minister from facing trial. Correct. And th- this is unbelievably controversial, and it's not clear that he would have the votes to do that. The most recent returns, and this is like within the hour, uh, is that the right-wing coalition, which is Bibi's Likud party, the traditional conservative party, and a smaller conservative party called Yamina, which means the right, which is full of uh, charismatic younger conservatives, and uh, the religious parties, and they're two major religious parties. That coalition ends up with 58 seats. Now, you need 61 seats to form a government. The other side isn't even close. The other side has uh, like 12 seats less. But the the problem here is now the latest thing. I, I can't believe it. The news keeps breaking. There, there is an accusation that there is a younger left-wing member of parliament who is going to be returning who uh, may be blackmailed about some hidden tape in which she describes Benny Gantz, who's the leader of the center-left, as a dumb loser. And (laughs) unless she goes over to Netanyahu, they're going to reveal this tape, which is supposed to ruin her career. You hear about this, this member of parliament who has a secret tape that's about to be exposed, you think, oh, it's going to be something you know, low, dirty. Andy, Anthony Weiner-like, yeah, right. Uh, no, this is basically just saying that uh, Benny Gantz, the former army chief of staff, who's the leader of the center-left, is a dumb loser, and there are a lot of people in the center-left who feel that way right now. <laughs> let's, uh, let's return to our shores and talk a little bit about Super Tuesday and uh, you know, advantage Biden clearly after last night. Uh, your assessment of uh, where the Democrat Party is headed? Oh, where the Democrat Party is headed is to a November disaster, it seems to me. I mean, because, I mean, Bernie is completely unacceptable. And what I think was really positive about last night is the American people said, look, we've told pollsters, we've told people, we're not socialists. We don't like socialism here. And by the way, the message in Israel is the same thing. The traditional socialist party in Israel, the Labor Party, fell to – they lost uh, – they did uh, – got half of the votes that polls predicted they would get. People have rejected socialism, uh, and they're rejecting it around the world. And Bernie's out of touch. And the idea is that if, if Biden runs as socialism light, he's going to get creamed. And then they're also – so, so basically, it seems to me in this country that barring some kind of disaster, especially with the primaries next week, where they have primaries in Missouri, which will probably go for Biden, and Michigan, which is who knows, because there, uh, Bernie's counting on a lot of Arab Americans in Michigan to with, give him a victory. Sure, Rashida Tlaib helping out, perhaps. Yeah, but I think Donald J. Trump is the big winner last night because what it indicates is that they're going to keep uh, fighting this out. And uh, I can't imagine that all the Bernie bros who have invested so much in their socialist dream are going to go quietly if, if 
Joe Biden wins at the uh, convention. Last time, according to exit polls last time in 2016, 12% of people who voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary voted for Donald Trump in the general election. I think he could do better than that among Bernie bros this time. Just just sticking on this for a second. Do, do you agree that so Joe Biden is the sa- you were describing as the safe play? It, it's very reminiscent to me, although he didn't have, you know, 30 years of inertia behind him at the national level. But it's reminiscent of me, uh, Mitt Romney in 2012, the safe play after all the other candidates had been measured and found wanting. Uh, yeah, there is there is that aspect. But the the thing about Mitt Romney was that uh, nobody questioned uh, his his suitability for the office. I mean, you right. may not have liked him, but right. uh, Mitt Romney's monumentally bright. And even today, and, and Mitt Romney is, I think, the exact same age as President Trump, uh, n- neither one of those looked different than they did uh, a while ago. I think that, I think that uh, Vice President Biden... Um, when you listen to him, you kind of almost root for him to complete his sentence. <laughs> and when that that becomes a challenge, I, it's 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 really hard to to envision what what the debates would look like between President Trump and Joe Biden. Michael Medved, host of the Michael Medved Show, member of USA Today's Board of Contributors, author of. God's Hand on America, Divine Providence in the Modern Era. Michael, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. You bet, Dan. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Children losing sleep and having nightmares over climate change, according to a new study. BBC News Newsround conducted a survey of 2008 to 16 year olds. Remember that the poll showed young people are feeling frustrated and anxious about the state of the planet, with 80 percent saying the problem of climate change was important to them. More than a third saying it was very important. Great. I wonder where eight year olds get that from. Nearly three quarters added they were worried about the state of the planet right now, including a 22 percent who said they were very worried. <sighs> More than half of the participants said they don't think their voices are being heard on climate change. Why wouldn't an eight year old's voice be heard on climate change? I wonder. Eight to 16 year old. Why wouldn't a majority of 2000 eight to 16 year olds feel like their views on climate change and ostensibly the science behind it aren't being properly heard. Two thirds don't believe people in power are listening them to them enough when they do talk about it. Listening to them or humoring them. Forty one percent. They don't trust adults to tackle the challenges that climate change presents. <laughs> Gee, again, I I wonder where they're hearing that. Could it be from uh, cranks of all ages, from Dave Attenborough to uh, Greta Thunberg? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it to some extent uh, I can understand this being nightmarish, losing sleep, having bad dreams, this eco anxiety being inflicted upon eight to 16 year olds because of the amplification of hysterics, fact free hysterics. Greta Thunberg could be included in this survey. She's just outside the age range, but she is not, I'm sure, markedly different in terms of uh, wisdom on the issue, knowledge of climate science so that your opinion is an informed one. It's wonderful to have opinions. 
wonderful to prattle on and uh, demand that everybody listen to you. It's quite another thing to be adding value to the conversation, isn't it? Mm -hmm. The question the survey raises for parents and adults is how to show young people that as a society, we're committed to addressing the challenges raised by climate change because the survey suggests they aren't convinced we are. That's what I need to do. I need to persuade uh, eight to 16 year olds that I'm serious about saving the planet in a way that, you know, they'll approve, thus giving me the standing. This is what's nightmarish. Studies like this. <laughs> this, the, I mean, and I, I do feel badly for the kids because, of course, they're just uh, artificially being uh, in, infected with anxiety from a bunch of, you know, political dinks, hysterics. Nightmares about Greta Thunberg. Yeah, I could say, actually, I could see Greta Thunberg as uh, sort of like a jigsaw in a James Wan, Lee uh, Wannell uh, horror series a la Saw. I could could absolutely see that, where she could legitimately give them nightmares from her performances on screen or screaming at people and so on and so forth. I mean, this, this is such an example of how infantilized adults have become and politicized they've become. Uh, to the detriment of their kids. It's sick stuff, I got to tell you. I mean, it's it's laughable and uh, disquieting all at the same time. Laughable and disquieting. Those are two qualities I try to bring to the table. Thank you for joining us on another installment of The Dan Prof Show. Uh, come back tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.